Hey, welcome to the Protectors. Interesting guest today. Today we're going to get behind the lines of the OSI, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. Kind of like the Jack Reacher of the Air Force, right? What's going on, Jack? How you doing? Pretty good. Yeah, um, a little similar. Yeah, I think he was uh, a CID, I guess. Yeah, he was CID of the Special Investigations Unit, which is probably oh, yeah. some made-up type of uh, Army-type unit. But yeah, it's pretty cool, man. How long were you in OSI for? Uh about a dozen years. That's cool. Yeah, I don't think a lot of people have any clue what OSI does. I mean, I worked with them a little bit when I worked with CIDF in 07, the Criminal Investigations Task Force here in D.C. area. Mm-hmm. But I don't think a lot of people understand the like the wide parameters of the OSI mission. And yes. they don't understand like civilians and like active duty or both agents. So let's, right. let's get into that, brother. Okay, yeah. So... um um yeah before i went to osi the only thing i knew about it was the the six million dollar man um was an osi agent that's that's how old i am but um osi uh basically the air force office special investigations similar to the navy's uh ncis um but uh um the ncis is made up of of all civilian agents osi can be a, a combination of active duty officers, enlisted, and uh, civilian agents. Um, and our responsibilities uh, uh, primarily to protect uh, anybody to do with the uh, Department of Defense where we're operating out of. Um, and we investigate uh, death investigations, uh, sexual assaults, rapes, um, espionage, counterintelligence, um, the whole gamut. And we have all kinds of resources. Uh, with people of uh, different backgrounds and different specialties come anything from languages to cyber guys to former special operations guys um, um, just if if when I went through the academy uh, at uh, the federal law enforcement training center in Glencoe Georgia um, are what we commonly refer to as flea tech. <laughs> flea tech, okay. okay. Uh, flea tech. All the all the right. uh, the outliers there and the civilians around there are like, you go to flea tech? That's like, oh my gosh. Right. Yep. Flea right. tech. Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah, when uh, you, know, you, you class up and you start talking to all the folks that you're in there with, you, um, you understand why they were recruited for their different specialties. Um. But yeah. well, that's the cool thing about, you know, yeah. sending the military, like, branches and stuff through, through I keep wanting to call it fleet deck, yeah. but through FLETC, right. through yeah. the criminal investigative training program, because you build these networks, too. You're actually not there just, a lot of times, you're not there as, like, a sole class. Right. Like, half your right. class could be made up of others, other specialty or other areas. So, it's kind of cool to, to yeah. branch out and kind of get an idea what's out there. Yeah, and you, you wind up working... Uh, with a lot of those uh, uh, folks in some capacity later on down the road. So, um, so yeah, it was a fun job. Nobody really knows uh, um, who the uh, active duty and who the civilians are. Um, that's purposely done, um, except for us, of course, within our uh, detachments that we're working. We know, we know who's who. Yeah, I like that aspect, too, of like, especially, you know, when you're working with the military branches, 
a lot of times when you're rolling, a lot of people don't understand, like, you could be a special agent and be in the military branches. I mean, with CID, CID agent, et cetera, mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. But when you're rolling into a branch and you're rolling in and you're talking with, um, let's say, ranking officers, a lot of times they don't want to respect or understand what you do. So I think right. sometimes you might, be, like, when you're rolling there as a civilian or with whatever your ID card may be at the time. Mm -hmm. You kind of have to be like, look, I'm here to investigate the crime. You know, we're taking over the jurisdiction for it, blah, blah, blah. So, I mean, I can imagine it's, it's a whole new animal when you're investigating crimes internally. Sure. Um, and and the, the big thing we have behind us is, um, you know, all the commanders that we may have to go talk to, they, they understand that um, our chain of command goes directly to the inspector general of the Air Force. Um, so there's, you know, we don't have to worry about uh, being pushed to go one way or the other when we're investigating or have to answer to uh, anybody except um, who needs the information. So, and it, and it can work the other way too. Say, for instance, um, if you have a, a captain and he's doing a criminal interview of a of a of an E three, you know, he could sense that he's being coerced in some way just because of rank. Yeah, but exactly. If, uh, so it works both ways. That's pretty cool. And a lot of people understand, like, listen, I love the Air Force. That some of the best chow I've ever had with the, was in the Air Force. But oh, when yeah. you when you start looking at the OSI aspect of it, and you know, there's different areas of the Air Force that are that are really outside the wire. And that's kind of one of one of the reasons I want to talk to you about your book, The Insurgent Hunter, mm -hmm. is you're actually outside the wire. You know, a lot of times people like, you know, when you're doing counterintelligence, when you're doing counterinsurgency, mm-hmm. It's hard to do it when you're inside the wire. So let's let's talk about how like let's talk about the how you got into this line of work. Like okay. how did you get like hey how did you from point A to how did people get into OSI for one, and then how do you get from OSI to you know you're all of a sudden you're outside the wire you're doing you're in combat. Right. Yeah. So so in in my case I was a, a naval special warfare operator um, um, in the SEAL teams for the first half of my military career. Um, Injuries led me to being an uh, instructor. Uh, while I was there, um, I'd say probably 19 out of 20 of us in our dive phase were all going to college at night, knocking out our degrees. And um, a lot of guys were putting in. There, there was there was no war going on any place at the time. Um, so a lot of guys were getting their degrees and using their background and, and going into some kind of law enforcement, whether it be a local PD, FBI, uh, DSS. Um, NCIS, um, a lot of guys were going that route. Um, I was, uh, told about OSI by a, a warrant officer in the teams who had worked with, uh, OSI agents. Um, I wanted to do something, uh, federal law enforcement, and this was a way where I could continue with my pension in a, in a career in the military. So, uh, applied for a commission, um, uh, was selected. Um, um, later on, you have to do another selection for OSI itself. They do a pretty deep uh, background investigation. Um, um, once once you once you go that route, you you, you do your time at Fletzy. You live at the Federal Law Enforcement Training uh, Center there in uh, Glencoe, Georgia, for six months. You live on the campus. It's kind of like, um, and it was like a playground to me. People ask me, "Hey, why do you say you enjoyed Fletzy?" It was awesome, man. You learned about the Fourth Amendment, and you you fought, shot, 
and drove cars fast and and PT'd every day. I mean, what was there not to like, you know? And the food wasn't half bad. Well, you know, let's get back to that food. <laughs> Just kidding. It's like, <laughs> and you know, back then it was like, you know, because I went the first time I went through, through was two thousand with the border patrol. Okay. And it was like, okay, then I went uh, late 2002 for uh, CITP and then customs follow on. But it was like, uh-huh. uh, there's only so much chicken breast you can, and I don't even know what they're doing with that chicken breast. They like, they put it right. in a thing of water. It's right. the same food now yeah. as it was like 30 years ago. Yeah. But like, awesome. you know, that's one thing I wanted to get into is like, so you do the CITP and for everybody out there, CITP is a criminal investigative training program. It's pretty much carte blanche for 90% of 1811s, unless you're like, you know, the quote unquote elite, like the FBI and D. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. But most people go to Georgia and they go through CITP, but it, it's a very basic overview of law enforcement. It's a very basic criminal investigator course. Mm-hmm. And when you're dealing with such a broad spectrum of things that you need to investigate, like with OSI, you're not, you're doing all the, you know, the bread and butter investigations. Like, you know, you're doing the murder investigations, you're doing assaults, you're doing this, you're doing that, but you're also terrorism. You're also counterinsurgency. Right. So what do you do for your follow-on? Is your follow-on there at Fletzy or is it somewhere else? So they even uh, have follow-ons. Yes. Yeah. So after, uh, after Fletzy, um, you go to, uh, I went, I was stationed at, um, Herbert field, the air force special operations command in, uh, in, uh, Florida. Um, and uh my unit there i showed up doing the uh you know you're doing the new guy thing i did the uh the death investigations i did the sexual assaults had an interesting sexual assault um we had a guy with like 23 victims he's still in leavenworth doing about 55 years right now and then uh um i wanted to do the downrange mission so the bosses i had there were like listen the downrange mission is running a, a confidential informants so you need to get a narcotics and start running some uh, confidential informants. So I did that for a while. You know, grew my hair out, beard, rode my Harley, wore flannels and uh, jeans to work. And um, I had informants buying ecstasy and stuff like that for me. And, you know, you're, you're learning you're learning how to uh, work with your informants. So when you get overseas, um, it's kind of the same thing. It's kind of the same thing. That's pretty cool, man. Now, you know. You're you're like me. You were in like the the nineties era, the Cold War, and then all of a sudden you're into this like, you know, the GWAT. Right. So what was your first tour like? Were you doing the GWAT stuff or were you doing like, hey, you know what, we need someone to go over there and just be like the on base investigator or something like that? No, no. I was uh I was actually um um in, in Iraq um for that tour and, and as soon as I landed uh, I want to say within two days, I was on my first mission going outside the wire, um, trying to meet up with an informant who had disappeared on us. Um, and uh, <laughs> you're doing the thing that you never want to do. You're going to their house in their neighborhood uh, to, to check on them. That just lets everybody know, like, hey, he's working with these guys. So, um, yeah, we we're, we're, were doing that right out of the gate. And And how we had it set up is – out there to protect the base, we had to target uh, uh, um, insurgents that were laying IEDs or um, rocketing or mortaring the base. And I don't know if you recall, but when I got there in 2007, we were being uh, mortared or rocketed. I think it was an average of like 40 times a week. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, oh, yeah, because you were in Balad. I forgot you were in Balad too. So it was like yeah. Mortaritaville. 
<laughs> yes, exactly. That's what they called it. Yep, Margaritaville. So when I got there, the agents were writing a lot of reports, but I'm like, um, hey, that's awesome. But how are you affecting the battle space? I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, it doesn't do any good to have all this intel if we don't have any targets to get rid of to keep us from getting bombed every day. So we sat down and there was a total of 10 of us agents. Uh, one was a commander and one was a senior NCO. And there was eight of us in kind of like what we call the bullpen. And we were in two man teams. And what we did is we took the AO outside of the um, blood, the sector about uh, 12 to 15 miles out. And we divided it into eight different sections. And anytime something, some kind of activity happened in that area, and, you know, the mortars and the rockets, you're able to get a, a point of origin all the time. Um, anytime, anytime something like that happened from those areas, you could go to those two agents and say, hey, mm-hmm. that's your area, man. You better figure that out, and we got to shut it down. And that's, and that's what we did. Yeah, it's funny because I was there in 06, and it was the same thing. And it was like a lot of the pickup trucks, a lot of these small, that you know, they're driving around, dropping yeah. the mortars. You get the you know where they're shooting it from but mm-hmm. stopping it it's like it's like you yes. never stop it so right. i guess that's where we get into the book right and, so, uh, and right. for everybody out there the book's insurgent hunter memoirs of a navy seal turned counterinsurgent counterinsurgent agent in iraq by jack treadway and stephen templin and that release date is coming up so i really want people to get out there and read this book because especially for everybody like you know it's been in that area that area of operations and stuff it's it's kind of an it's behind the scenes. I like that. So how did the book come about? And like, you know, obviously that we always want to write books, not just for ourselves, but for the legacy of those that we served. Yeah. So, um, like I said, we had a a 10 man team when I was there, we had some interpreters and we had a couple analysts, but, um, when I arrived, we had just lost uh, a tactical support element. The army used to be attached to us. Um, and those would be the guys that would escort, um, in a convoy, two agents and an interpreter out to go meet our informants, you know, um, in spots, you know, away from everybody kind of clandestine. We lost those elements before I got there. So OSI is like, look, we're just going to conduct these missions on our own. So we have to take all 10 agents and we had to have a minimum of a, a three convoy, a three truck convoy, which meant three Humvees with uh, crew serve weapons um, to go out and, uh, and uh, meet these guys in these areas. Um, we, uh, we were doing a pretty good job. We shut it down pretty good. It was primarily um, because of agents like we lost and our 10 man team was uh, three guys. Um, it was um, um, Tom Crowell, uh, David Weger and uh, Nathan Schulheis. Um, these guys were really good at what they did. They were good OSI agents. You typically didn't get deployed unless you were a really competent operator at home. Um, we uh, we were targeting a lot of high-value targets out there, and we were caught in the middle of uh, the Sunni-Shia problem, too, because those guys were fighting each other as well. So it was hard to trust either side. Um, we we uh, uh, Nathan had got intelligence on a um, kind of like a double agent uh, Iraqi captain who was also working for a, 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 a Shia militia supported by the Iranians. Um, 
one of the SUNY informants that Nathan had um, was giving us that information. Uh, we weren't we we weren't sure about we we didn't have all that yet. He hadn't told us that yet. But the um, the Iraqi captain uh, was aware of our our SUNY informant, and um, he didn't like him. He winds up uh, uh, wrapping him up and putting him in his jail. And uh, Nathan, Nathan wants him back, and we can't understand why a guy who's on our side is having a problem with the Iraqi army. Um, Nathan um, was getting close to that type of information. We wound up uh, uh, pulling some strings and getting that informant back to us. Um, we had another informant in that Iraqi captain's area. And um, I think he was worried about information we might have been collecting on him, which we weren't yet at that point. We didn't know that he was up to up to no good. And uh, we had a mission that was canceled one night. Um, and I had two other agents that came to me and said, hey, um, we've got information on one of our uh, EOD guys that was killed. Um, we have an informant that wants to meet us tonight and give us this information. Well, you, you couldn't say no to that. You had to, you had to go get this information, um, to go after the guys that killed, uh, one of our own, but, uh, it wound up being a setup and there was a pressure activated, uh, IED and, um, <clears throat> our three buddies were in the first truck. I was in the second one and, um, that, that's how we lost them. So, but, uh, damn yeah. brother. Yeah. Yeah. First when yeah, I was reading, was when the, night. when the, when the publicist reached out to me, they're like, Oh, insurgent hunter must be a, a, a fiction book. And then I start reading, I'm like, Oh man, you know, the toughest thing to do is talk about people you've lost. And I know, yeah, yeah. but that's the thing is like, we talked about it. It's like, you know, you, you write these books, not for your own, you know, self glorification, but yeah. To, to keep the memory alive and then you know obviously you're getting on to show what happened afterwards so i mean dealing with that loss but then what happens after that loss i mean you still have to operate you still have to you're still in the war zone you still have to keep the mission going and a lot of people don't realize it's not like you, you're like hey you know yeah. what we lost some buddies we're going home now no you lost buddies now you have to you have to continue on absolutely absolutely something like that happens at home the whole place shuts down and everybody has the opportunity to mourn. Um, not, not so much there, you know, we, um, um, you know, agents came from, uh, all across the, uh, the theater. Um, the, the army guys were, uh, pretty inspirational because, um, they had just lost, um, uh, um, a couple guys a couple weeks before, uh, actually probably about a month before, um, from some guys that planted an IED uh, uh, in front of one of their patrols. And we actually supported them and brought them the Intel and we went out and executed, uh, um, the capture of, um, of, uh, two of those guys one night. Um, but you know, they were right back at it. And that's what I had to tell my guys. I was like, look, you know, and these were our first Cav, uh, artillery guys that were out doing, um, urban warfare, basically. Um, and they, and they, they got pretty good at it. Um, that's, that's who we worked with a lot. 
Um, and I had to tell them, say, hey, look, it's not like they could stop going on their patrols, guys. Um, we're down a truck. We got to get another one, get it back up. And we still got to go out there and collect intel on some of these targets we're following up on. So, uh, but one thing we made sure of is, you know, a lot of guys might, you know, go in, go into uh, 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 combat and like, okay, they're bad guys. We're good guys. They're wearing this uniform. We're wearing this one. You really don't know the face or the person behind that gun on the other side. Well, in this case, after we did our investigation, um, which took us, it took us a couple of weeks and we were able to bring a lot of resources to bear um, on it from different parts of the theater and synergize a lot of our uh, intel. And that's how we found out about the Iraqi captain and some of his other folks. Um, so part of getting back out there was getting after the guys that did this to us. And um, we were able to, uh, we were able to pull one of them in before I got back. And um, he wound up being such a, a, a big target that he was connected more strategically than we thought. We thought it was just a tactical thing. So yeah, the, yeah, we, uh, the human element of all this as well is people don't realize that when you're in, when you're working counterinsurgency and when you're working these type of, you know, the GWAT, the GWAT is no uniforms. There, there is, you have no idea who is who and what is what. Right. And now you're out there, you have to develop like human intelligence. You have to bring in these like gig sources. You have to get real people to like put everything on the line in order to get targets. Yeah. And, uh, and it, you, what you really had to find out is what motivated them to want to help you in the first place, mm -hmm. you know, and then you had to, you had to, uh, vet them, you know, and, and test them and, and make sure you could trust them, which you could never fully trust them. And that was, uh, exactly yes. what is yeah. it it's a uh, was it revenge money and uh like um a couple other things why people become informants yeah. it's like and good luck vetting that right right um um i would say a, a good amount of what we had were the, the good ones were just tired of the 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 bad guys in their villages mm -hmm. bringing the wrath of the u.s army on them all the time they were just tired of it and they didn't want to be a part of it. And they didn't believe in what those guys were doing in the first place. So they would tell us about it. Now, how do you transition out of this? You know, you go to war, you lose buddies yeah. and then you got to come back and like, did you, did you stay on the, on the, on a CT mission, counterinsurgency mission when you got back or did you? Kind I kind of did. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of did. Um, I went back and I was put with a unit that, um, that was their primary job. Um, uh, I was, uh, uh, I've almost got sent down. I got spun up to go to Columbia not long after I got back for, uh, those American hostages that we, uh, that were being held, um, down there. There was a couple of them during that time. And, um, they spun me up and put me in isolation, but those guys were, those guys were, uh, picked up and found while I was being, um, standing by to being shipped out. So, so yeah, I went back and I did the same kind of work. Um, um, we had other guys that were overseas in other places like, uh, Pakistan. Um, we got a couple guys out of there right before the hotel they were staying in and got, got blown up. Um, but yeah, I did that kind of work for a while. And then I, uh, now you, you uh, mentioned Columbia, man. I'm ready to go. 
you know it's not yeah, right. the drug it's not like it's yeah, not what people yeah. think i'm always like you know yeah. everything i've heard about columbia is not yeah. this like drug mecca it's like it's beautiful yeah you know, i'd I like never, to i'd rather yeah. be in columbia than balad how about that <laughs> I, I i can understand you there yeah yeah the funny thing about it was is um not long after i got back so while i was while i was uh in iraq tom um um one of our agents um that we lost he talked me into putting in a package for uh to go to naval postgraduate school um uh to to, to promote promote my career a little bit it was a, as a master's degree program and you had to get selected for it and i was like yeah i'm not much into going back to school tom i'm sick of school as it is he's like no no it'd be good for you so i went ahead and put in for it um since I was downrange, I got last pick of what languages and what part of the world I was going to specialize in. And I got, uh, I got selected for security studies and then to study Korean. So the guys are kind of oh. laughing at me about that. Yeah. I'd rather go back to Balad than to go, go to Korea <laughs> for a year, man. <laughs> you know that? So yeah. back in the nineties, I always tell people yeah. the story is like, I, I took the D lab because I was going to branch transfer when I was enlisted yeah. And I took the D lab. I wanted to go to Spanish. I was like, Monterey, California, Spanish oh, yeah. six months. Yeah. I'm like, hell yeah. So yeah. I go and take the D lab. And then the uh, MI branch manager guy, whoever was, whatever, I don't know what they call him for enlisted, but he was like, uh, sorry, but Spanish, how about Arabic? And this is the 90s. I'm like, what the hell am I going to do with Arabic? I'm like, nah, right. no thanks. Yeah. But yeah, Naval Postgrad. Like, so if you're a Fed, a lot of people don't realize this too. Like, when you're a civilian Fed, you can put in for a lot of these programs, like your master's. Right. Right. And they have the East Coast and the West Coast cohorts. And some of the cohorts you get to go to are like Monterey and stuff like that. I'm like, hell yeah, I'll go to Monterey. Yeah, yeah that's pretty nice. So, yeah, it's funny because when I was an enlisted team guy, um, um, they sent me for Spanish. And I stink at both languages, by the way. But they sent me to uh, uh, Spanish, and we had a, a DEA agent in class with us. So yeah, there's there's yeah. federal guys that went there. Yeah, oh, I know it's got to be better than like border patrol Spanish. People are like uh, that. Like I I hardly know any Spanish anymore. But you know that must be kind of a cool thing. That was like so when you're so if you're did you now did you go officer OSI or like you said I did, did I did yeah, yeah. so um I, so do you still wear like, the trident like when you're no so you don't wear a uniform at all oh, okay when you're in osi you know no, i mean not just like in general but like for a dress uniform or anything like that yeah so the um the air force instruction says uh um in their branch um any uh any insignia or badge that you earned in another another branch you can wear it so i would wear the trident but i would only wear it on my uh service dress i wouldn't wear it you know if i was say out of school or something where I had to be in uniform, I wouldn't wear it on that most, most of the time. Yeah. That's pretty cool, man. It sounds like an interesting career. So, I mean, you know, it's gotta be, you know, it's a lot. I can't believe it's 2024, man. Cause like when you talk about 2007, to me, it seems like some days it seems like yesterday, you know, but now it's like, geez, man, it's like 15 years post. Yeah. Yeah. So you asked earlier, you know, the reason behind the book too, It, it was, uh, I honestly, I, I, at the time I could care if the book saw the light of day, I was just, um, more or less, it was a cathartic exercise for me, you know? Um, because you know, when you, when you, when you stop working, well, that's, that's, that's when all the bad memories bubble up, you know, and you, you realize like, okay, I never really took the time to get over this. 
Um, you need so, to take the time, brother. And I, I tell yeah. people, you gotta, you have to, and writing is like, it's therapy, man. Yeah, it's, it's different for everybody. Um, fortunately for me, um, uh, Stephen Templin, you know, he's a uh, pretty well, uh, pretty well published uh, author. Um, he's had a New York Times uh, bestseller. We actually went to Buds together. So um, we talked and uh, he says, man, you, you got to put this out there. <clears throat> And uh, I go, well, I don't know nothing about how to do any of that. So I'll let you, I'll let you control that <laughs> if you want to. And uh, one thing, you know, when he started talking to publicists is, uh, you know, they wanted to get it out there. I'm like, I can't do that yet. They're like, why? I'm like, I'm not letting this go anywhere until it gets vetted through DOD. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and I can understand why a lot of people don't do that. It took about a year and a half, you know? Oh yeah. It takes forever, man. Yeah. But like I said, I could care less if it, came off the shelf or not you know so i had all the patients in the world and um they're they're pretty cool about it It was mostly with uh uh secretary of the air force office in uh um socom i think it was a socom probably the longest so well i'm going to tell you that right now is the hardest thing to do is coming off of life and this and that and trying to get into marketing and and trying to get people like hey look at this book over here but you know it's it's tough because that's not in our it's not ingrained in us no it's not ingrained in us to be like oh look how great i am i mean it is for some people you'll see that on social media the vet bros and stuff like that yeah. yeah but the majority of us are just like hey look this is the story i want to tell i want you to understand what's going on with this point a point b point c this is the facts as i know them so you could be more educated right rather than self-glorification i'm going to pick the book up myself usually i get you know, the PDFs and stuff like that, but I actually like a physical book sometimes. I love yeah. audio books, but just having that physical book and being able to read it. And now when I read it for me, it's going to be personal because like I was in that area and just be able to see it. And like, everybody right, right. It'll, it'll take you back. Um, there's a couple of people who reviewed it for us and they're like, holy mackerel. It's like, I was right back there with you. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it, man. Yeah. The, the guys that had experience out there really related to it. We had some good feedback for us so and it, you well, know, i'm excited for you bro i'm excited to see you get onto this i mean the next path yeah so the, i don't know what the next path really is because you know I, i'm using a pseudonym like i keep uh all my buddies names in that are still working i keep their names as pseudonyms and um just recognize the the folks that we lost you know that made the ultimate sacrifice but um i you know i don't don't need my name out there. Don't, don't need my picture taken. Um, I've got no social media footprint. Um, anybody wants to know anything more about it, they can contact uh, uh, Stephen Templin. He's got all kinds of social media since he's a published author out there. Yeah. You know, if I didn't have this podcast and nonprofits, I would be off of social media, man. It's tough, man. I don't know if I'd be able to handle it. You guys, uh, <laughs> you guys decide uh, to take it on and take, take whatever comes left and right. I just, yeah. Yeah. I couldn't do it. Well, I appreciate you, brother. And everybody make sure you pick up insurgent hunter coming out February 20th.